Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. The blue skies of the Bahamas melt into a warm orange as the sun sinks into the ocean. For most, bidding farewell to the day with a view of the Caribbean horizon would be relaxing. But this particular sunset was anything but relaxing for one man, Randy Lanier. One day, Randy's job would be a race car driver. But today, idling in his 27-foot Magnum sport boat, he was waiting to pick up nearly a ton of marijuana in order to smuggle it into South Florida. And to be clear, a ton of weed is a ton of weed. It was Randy's maiden voyage as an international drug smuggler, and the drop was late. As the skies darkened, the anxiety rose. Finally, Randy's connection shook. Weighed down with a ton of weed, Randy gunned the 340 horsepower Magnum towards the South Florida coastline. Under the cloak of night, he piloted his craft through Florida's labyrinth of intercoastal waterways, channels that were frequently described as a smuggler's dream. The last step was to offload the bales of weed onto the beach. A crew was ready with several vans standing by to grab and go. Suddenly, Randy's radio chirped. We got FBI agents on the beach. The work stops. Silence falls along the coast. Randy senses the end. He's caught. Busted. A smuggling career ended before it even began. As Randy is hiding behind some dunes, he sees the agents, who are really just a couple strolling the beach. The radio chirps again. All clear. Everything went smoothly, and young Randy was now $5,000 richer. Today on Past Gas, 
Randy Lanier was one of the most exciting race car drivers of the 80s, but he also had a secret life as a drug smuggler. How did these two pursuits intertwine in the psyche of one adrenaline junkie? Was Randy a better smuggler or driver? And just how did a young guy from Virginia turn into a drug kingpin? All this and more on today's episode, Randy Lanier, Weed for Speed. Fun fact, the beach that they landed on was in Melbourne, Melbourne, Florida, where uh, Jeremiah is from. That is where Jeremiah is from. They don't say like the Aussies. Melbourne, they probably enunciate the whole thing. Yeah, maybe too much. Like Versailles, Kentucky. (laughs) Yeah, that one really bugs me. That one kills me. (laughs) Have you ever uh, driven a boat full of weed, Joe? No, I drove a pontoon at Big Bear Lake, actually, with the guy who wrote this script, uh, Jacob Waisaki. You guys were smuggling weed across? Yeah, we, we did. We were smoking a little bit of weed, not going to lie. <laughs> and it said no diving off the boat, and we just didn't think of it, and we dove off the boat. And it was frigid, and oh, it God. shocked all of our muscles. Oh, my God. And when we tried to get back on the, the boat, obviously there's like – since we had all jumped off, it rose a bit. Yeah. Oh, no. And there was no ladder because it said no diving, yeah. obviously. They don't want we to understood that. then what it meant. And it was like I felt like I almost died. Yeah. Like it took like three people to pull me up on the boat. And my friend is a little bit bigger. It took like four people. And we're all just like trying to pull him up before his <laughs> muscles atrophy. And oh, my it felt God. like a near-death experience. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> so and every time we hang out, like uh, some iteration of that group, we're like, remember when we almost died? <laughs> <laughs> That's why there's warning signs. I know. We just didn't think of it. We're like, oh, those are just for like babies. <laughs> yeah. I, I do like the, uh, the, the inclination to just take safety warnings is like, eh, that's yeah, that's not for me. I can yeah. handle it. I know what I'm doing. I think of that when I take like, uh, like an exit ramp or something mm-hmm. and it says like recommended speed for the ramp and it's like 35 and I'm like I could hit this at 50 and be all right yeah yeah my car dude I've got coilovers on this I can do this at like 75 and then you're <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> you're like halfway through the turn and you're like huh I, <laughs> I get I understand why yeah oh, I'm uh, drifting uh, a little bit towards things the feel rail. a little unstable I, I guess uh <laughs> I understand why that signs there I'll remember that for next time and then just do the same thing again yep, me too it's even sketchier in my forerunner because it's lifted three inches so be safe out there hello everybody welcome back to past gas yeah this week we're talking about Randy Lanier uh, we, we've actually covered Randy before a couple years ago. If you're a real dedicated fan of Donut, you probably remember that story. If you're a true head. If you're a true Donut head, we're going to get back into it. Um, we're going to explore his story in much more depth this week. So uh, stick around. And if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm one of the hosts here. Uh, and joining me today is my buddy, Joe Weber. What's up, Slug Nation? <laughs> Keep it winked. <laughs> Uh, no James this week. He's taking the day off, uh, unfortunately, because I feel like he would have loved this story, but he'll be back next week. Um, so yeah, just Joe and I today. Joe, we haven't hung out in a while. I feel like I've just seen you at the office like th- twice. You've been 
ankle deep in the low car. That's true. And I feel like you're just so focused on it. I mean, which is a good thing because it needs to get done. But like, I feel like I've had, I've heard around the office, like I haven't seen Nolan in a while. I <laughs> Nolan hasn't been in this video for a while. It's like, and then the comments too, people are on YouTube yeah. are like, Nolan needs to be in more videos. So once yeah. you're done with Hilo. Once Hilo's over, we'll be back in the swing of things. Uh, yeah, we've been really cranking on this. I think today the car could be finished, hopefully, knock on wood. All we got to do is finish up some body work. We got to bleed the uh, the radiator. I just put a new one in yes- or, yeah, yesterday. Because then, the other one had a hole in it? The other one had a hole, unfortunately. And, of course, I put a new one in, and then it's like a different brand. We went first it had a Megan racing yeah um because it's pretty affordable right that's a pretty affordable one but then we went like that one wasn't available for like next day shipping so we went with a mishimoto it has cool branding and like it kind of is an upgrade yeah it in name i guess anyway i put the thing back in thinking like okay it's basically the same as the megan like this should fit no problem and of course like the fan shroud really didn't want to fit correctly because yeah. like the welds were crooked on the radiator itself, so that <laughs> it didn't line up. So every like now it has like a weird noise when the fans run. <laughs> oh no! So I'm just like, ah, oh, cool. I'm over it, man. So that needs to be filled with coolant. I need to bleed the system, and then Jeremiah is gonna wire up the tachometer, and then we'll be done. Nice with low car. That's exciting. It is, dude. I, yeah, we've been. This is week four, I think, of uh, of high low. Every every time the high low shoots and builds come around the schedule it's just like this lull of i mean everyone's like oh, i dread this we need to do it because it's our most popular thing but it is just like this energy suck and everyone's always pissed off for <laughs> six weeks and like mad that we can't get in touch with any of you guys <laughs> yeah yeah we basically live in that garage yeah it's a labor of love it's a labor of love and i think that this time around like we we're taking the same amount of time for like half as many videos with this uh, rotation. And I think that's worked out in our benefit because if we were trying to like force it and go to the track without yeah. things finished and without things how we would have liked that's it. That's how you like, blew up your other motor. That, exactly, exactly. So we are learning from our mistakes. And this time around, like low car is in its best form yet, I think. Like we were able to take time and make things nice looking and make sure everything's sorted. And I'm just really, really excited for you guys to see it. Just when you go into when you go to the track, have the mentality that you've got a ton of weed in your trunk. And you're trying <laughs> yeah. to outrun the cops. That's right. That's right. Let's get into our story then. Let's talk about Randy Lanier. Randy Lanier. <laughs> Why is okay? Every Leave time. Leave that in, please. <laughs> every time we do the podcast, literally every time I wake up, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm chilling. And then once once I hit the record button. That's when my post-nasal drip is like, oh, he's trying to talk? Let's get this guy. <laughs> it's just like cold oil once it yeah, warms up. I think it, it is, dripping. and I'm like sitting up, you know? I don't know. Anyway, Randy Lanier was born on a working-class Virginia tobacco, tobacco farm. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Jesus Christ. Turbacker. <laughs> Turbacker. Turbacker firm. Randy Lanier was born on a working-class Virginia tobacco farm in 1954. He didn't come from money. His family's legacy was hard work for little pay. His parents moved Randy and his siblings to Hollywood, Florida, just as he became a teenager. 
Like many teams of the time, Randy gravitated toward the budding hippie culture of the late 60s. He grew his hair out and started smoking joints with his buddies on the beach. Sounds like a good time. Randy's dad wasn't too happy with his son's development and urged him to get a haircut. Instead, in Randy's words, quote, Just took off for a little while. (laughs) He and his buddies drove up the East Coast with, quote, $20, a matchbox of weed, maybe a few hits of acid. Randy says that during that summer, he and his stoner buddies, quote, Went to all the rock shows, every single one. The list of bands he saw is truly impressive. They went to see The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Pink Floyd, Chuck Berry, and The Beach Boys, just to name a few. Pretty good lineup. Do you know what I just realized? What? Do you remember that 90s band Buck Cherry? Yeah. yeah. It's oh. just a playoff of Chuck Berry? Can that be right? Dude, if that is, <laughs> that actually makes me like them a little more. <laughs> yeah. Because I do not like I don't like them at all. I don't like the musical stylings of Buck Cherry. They're not for me, but no. that is pretty funny. <laughs> but our uh our head of production is in one of their music videos, so that's kind of cool. That's crazy. <laughs> oh man. Um dude, this lineup right here, that's like uh it's pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. Yeah, I feel like that would be a festival in at the Rose Bowl nowadays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it costs three hundred dollars. It's safe to say that this summer of rock and roll influenced Randy. It also stands in stark contrast to many of the race car drivers we profiled on this show before. The ones with rich parents who spend their teens karting or are learning to drive on the vast acreage of their family estate. Unlike wealthier kids, Randy had to make some money. At age 15, Randy was on a construction job and started selling weed on the side. Nothing major, just a few bags here and there. But whatever skills you need to be an effective drug dealer... Randy seemed to have them. He rose to the ranks pretty quickly. And by 17, Randy was selling ounces. In fact, Randy was caught selling an ounce at his high school, and he decided to drop out instead of dealing with his suspension. Taking a step away from high school allowed him to focus more on his quote-unquote business. Randy would eventually get a GED, but stepping away from a traditional education proved very prosperous for Randy. Quickly, Ounces turned into pounds, and pounds turned into entire bales of marijuana. The bales are what paid for his dream purchase, a 27-foot Magnum speedboat he bought for $18,000, around 92 k in today's money. Damn. What, he was 17 at this point, he bought a boat? That's wild. I've never been to Florida. Never been to Florida? No. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, never been to Florida, but it sounds like a very, uh, like the mix of like being on the beach you know, I know country or uh, I know Florida can also be very country depending on where you're at, like mm-hmm. in the north. But like, I mean, it, no, it's at, everywhere. Like, you just move outside of the city and it's very country. Yeah. So it's like a, a interesting mix of like country with a lot of beach, like Gulf Coast, laissez faire kind of vibe. So, like, growing up in like the 70s or the, the 60s and the 70s at that time, it just like, yeah, it totally makes sense that this guy would buy that he would drop out. Going to into selling pot and then buying a powerboat. Yeah. Like that totally yeah, it seems like a natural progression. Yeah. Initially, Randy used the boat for leisure, something to do on the weekends, take the boys out fishing. Randy's friends loved ripping it up on the boat, but one of his buddies saw it as an opportunity to expand the business. They asked Randy if he'd be willing to make a run to the Bahamas and secure nearly a ton of weed. Randy replied, sure, why not? It was an easy yes for Randy. If caravanning in the summer of his youth taught him anything, 
he loved a good adventure. After the success of Randy's first run, he began making regular jaunts to the Bahamas for shipments. He also got married, had a kid, and started a jet ski rental business that operated as a front for him to funnel the drug money. In other words, typical Florida stuff. You always got to have a front. Got to have that front. So you got the, the weed money. Yeah. And then you use that money to pay your business for the jet ski rentals. And then likely those jet skis never really even go out on the water. Yeah, I think it has to be a business that, you know, like it can't be a product sold because then there'd ha- you'd have to buy buy the product and right. then make it disappear or something. If it's something like renting a jet ski where it's like easy to fudge and you're like, yeah, that jet ski was out all day. <laughs> yeah. I got yeah. $10,000 for that whole day of jet skiing. Like it's that's how you justify it here you go not only do we uh not only do we cover automotive and motorsports history on the show we also teach you how to launder money yeah laundering <laughs> one or one or one which we learned from uh better call Saul. <laughs> <laughs> i think if i had to launder money i would probably have an art gallery an art gallery oh that's yeah, yeah. cuz you you get property you ha- you buy you know a brick and mortar Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to even be filled with anything. You could throw a, a McDonald's wrapper on the ground and be like, "That's art." <laughs> and then also, if you do have a show, you get to rub elbows with like the social elite. Yeah. So you're making connections, dude. You know, I always wonder how like art galleries survive. That is a common way that wealthy people launder money. So, how did a successful drug smuggler find a second? equally risky career as a race car driver. Flush with cash from his lucrative dealings, Randy was looking for a hobby. He found himself at the 1978 Miami Car Show held at the Miami Beach Convention Center. It was there that he picked up a pamphlet for a driving school. So this he must have been, what, 18 at this point? Uh, 24. 24 years old. Randy took the pamphlet home, mulled it over, then called the number to sign up for a class. He didn't appear to have received a great deal of formal schooling. In fact, Randy had this to say about learning how to drive high-performance vehicles. I didn't have a clue. I just fucking drove. (laughs) (laughs) I like this guy. Yeah. After graduating from his class, he bought a beat-up 1957 Porsche Speedster. If he didn't have much in the way of experience or training, he had natural ability. His driving instructor said that Randy was among the most talented students he ever had. It seems likely that part of the talent lay in the risk center of Randy's brain. Scientists have actually studied the brains of risk-taking individuals like free climbers and base jumpers, finding that they don't process fear in a typical way. A typical brain releases two chemicals in response to fear, cortisol, cortisol, and dopamine. Cortisol is associated with stress, dopamine, pleasure. It's safe to assume Randy the racer had a skewed sense of risk tolerance, more dopamine than cortisol. Evading the U.S. Coast Guard with a boat full of drugs likely provided much of the same rush. Randy started entering his Porsche, which was wired with lamp cords, into (laughs) amateur competitions. Talent could only take him so far, and he also spent plenty of time at the racetrack studying other drivers. He worked hard to master the basics of racing, among other things cornering, brake control, and apexes. Randy's entry into professional racing in 1982 happened in a haphazard sort of way. He was attending the 24 hours of Daytona as a spectator when he caught wind that a racer had fallen ill and was unable to compete. Randy took out the team's smoking hot Ferrari 512 and put in some speedy practice laps. Without much other choice, 
They gave him a shot. I remember this part of the documentary. He just kind of goes up to the guy and he's like, can I race? And the guy's like, I guess. No way. Yeah. I mean, that's how they made it seem. It was probably a little bit more formal than that, but. That's so wild. Randy and two other drivers managed to keep the Ferrari in third place for nearly 18 hours. That's really cool. Dang. Yeah. Just kind of thrown into the fire. Unfortunately, the car was disqualified after Randy nuked its gearbox by driving a little bit too aggressively. Despite the DNF, Randy had attracted positive attention. He was invited to compete in the oldest auto endurance race of all time, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Wow, what an impression. I know. Just to be like, oh, my second race is the is Le Mans. He <laughs> <laughs> must have been really, really good. In France, Randy got bit by the race car lifestyle bug hard. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's your, it's your second race. You're racing in Le Mans. Of course, this dude's got the bug. It's like uh, when you and I took our stand-up class, and then yeah. we had those two shows. Like, our first show was, like, the bringer, or, like, the, the showcase. Like, everyone's friends was there, and, like, it's a very it encouraging packed. thing. It was great. It felt awesome. It was like, oh, man, I'm, like, pretty good at this. Yeah. Then we went to the uh, the comedy store yeah and like it was at the um, in the in the the belly room which is like a small room yeah and it was like they should call it the crotch room cuz <laughs> that's what it smells like and like i had a great set there too yeah I, like i killed it and i was like damn i'm like pretty good at this <laughs> <laughs> i love this comedy lifestyle and then the next show was in the main room at the comedy store and i like bombed and i was like oh, oh. no well, I didn't bomb. I just had a bad set. And I was like, oh, man, reality's coming down on me. <laughs> I truly think it takes someone to be like a masochist in some mm-hmm. sense where like you are past the point of not caring about bombing when like sometimes you just like crave that mm-hmm. awkwardness and you and you can live in it. Mm-hmm. And I never got to that point. So we got to get back into it, dude. Yeah, let's do it. Let us know in the Apple reviews if you want to come <laughs> see us do stand-up. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Randy had quickly gone from a hobbyist to someone who was ready to dedicate his life to racing. Just like I was ready to dedicate my life to the to the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> Until like 10 people don't like your set. <laughs> Randy had dominated the Southeast Amateur Circuit. Now Lanier began racing at the IMSA GT Circuit. 
you must have felt right at home. Drugs and the Florida race scene were synonymous, and the International Motorsports Association especially so. In fact, the nickname for the league was the International Drug Smugglers Association. Wow. Just like in F1, if you followed the money, it took you to some pretty dark places. From 1981 to 1983, Randy drove with a slew of different teams with several different cars. Cars like Chevys, Porsches, and Ferraris. He didn't perform well enough to garner much attention in those first few years, though. That's so wild, though, man. He was, like, learning how to race, and then, like, four years later, he's at Daytona and hops in a car. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, he's pretty good. And then the next race, yeah. Just I, I insane. kind of uh, wax poetic about this time where racing was more accessible, mm-hmm. and you could just, like, walk up and become friends with a team lead and be like, hey, you know, if this guy's sick, uh, you know, I can race too. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's been, like, not an inflation of talent. Well, sort of. I think so. Like, back then, yeah, like, these cars were designed, first of all, they weren't as, like, advanced as the cars today, but also, like, I think racing as a profession hadn't been around as long. So at that time, you didn't have kids that started driving when they were literal children yeah. like we do today. So, like, if you just had, like, an innate talent for it, you probably did have a leg up on some people who just, like, wanted to do it for fun that were just, like, rich guys, you know? Yeah, dynasties, like, you know, like, family dynasties mm-hmm. weren't really a thing yet. This is, like, the late 70s. Yes, or mid-80s. So there were some racing families around, but, like... A couple racing part, families. Yeah, like, not like there are today. That's for it sure. also kind of... The weird thing about racing back then is it existed where it was, like, you know, rich people did it, but it also felt kind of like a blue-collar thing. Uh-huh. And, or maybe not not scummy, but just, like below other rich people activities. Yes. And so that's what makes it cool is like, you know, you get weird characters that don't care about status, don't care about whatever, and just want to race and are are just like throwing themselves around in these old dangerous cars. Yeah, it's super (laughs) – I I like that you bring it up. It's like it it varies by by discipline. Like Formula One – it's a very old money, white yeah. collar. It's always of, been high society. Yeah, high society organization. Whereas drag racing, that's a very blue collar yeah. uh, sport. NASCAR, oval racing was very blue collar, but now we're kind of seeing like the dynasty dynamic, the the old money kind of effect that you're talking about. I think like motocross, that's a very like blue collar kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Mo, uh, MotoGP, I'm not so sure. Like the road You need money to do MotoGP. Yeah. In 1984, his drug running career even more lucrative, Randy started his own racing team, Blue Thunder Racing. By Randy's own estimate, he dumped millions and millions of dollars into this team over its lifespan. At some point, he stopped counting. He bought two March racing cars, both with 5.8 liter Chevy V8s under the hood. He bought a warehouse, he hired a team of mechanics, and even brought on an ex-Formula One crew chief. The rest of Blue Thunder was comprised of his drug smuggling buddies. (laughs) Blue Thunder Racing was famously or infamously known as the only team where every crew member had a Rolex. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm not like a big watch guy, but I saw a GQ video on like different levels of watch affordability. And now I'm like, hmm, watches are kind of cool. All right. I get sucked into those kind of things really easily. I love collecting stuff. So it's probably better that I don't 
yeah. get into watches because it seems like a, a black hole. Blue Thunder wasn't just flashy off track. Their first year of racing caught everybody's attention. Randy shocked the IMSA paddock, winning the Los Angeles Grand Prix, beating out racing legends like Fittipaldi and Al Holbert. After that first win, the Thunder kept rolling, notching wins at Monterey, Charlotte, Portland, the Michigan 500, and the New York 500. And at the end of the year, Randy was awarded the most improved driver and was named Camel's GT champion. But just like going from sling announces to bartering weed bales, Randy needed a bigger rush. He set his sights on the Indy 500. So I, this doesn't really give it the weight that it should get. Like winning the IMSA championship in one of the first years that you start a team is insane. That is, that's, yeah, that's wild, man. He was going against the Porsche factory team. <laughs> yeah, that's wild, dude. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, that's what a crazy set of circumstances. Like you have a guy that is like really good at selling drugs. Yeah. Early smuggling, but also just like an innately talented driver. Like, yeah, you have to be insanely talented to even get in the top 10 yeah. for this. Make no mistake, it takes money to win because you got to have the equipment, but like you can't just stick a scrub in a really good car and win. No, you need talent. Back at IndyCar. Yeah, that's right. So he's going to take that innate talent he had and take yeah. it to Indianapolis. Oh, that's another crazy jump too to be like, these cars that go 190 are not fast enough. I need to go 220. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With no roof over my head. Yeah. <laughs> Randy had no experience in driving Indy cars, which were way faster than anything he had driven before. It was also a much more deadly and dangerous discipline than IMSA. And to compete at Indy, Randy would need to take that tap pouring drug money into racing and upgrade it to a fire hose. Luckily, massive balls and an excess of cash continued to be Randy's twin calling cards. On the day of the Indy 500, he broke the record for the fastest speed during a qualifying lap. He was racing in a March 86C fitted with a Cosworth DFX V8 engine. Hell yeah. The race itself further proved that Randy was the real deal. Randy was the only rookie to finish, placing an impressive 10th place. That's insane. He was also awarded a true career milestone, Indy 500 Rookie of the Year. That's insane, dude. What? <laughs> so the Cosworth DFV engine, the V8, was like the engine for yes. multiple different uh, disciplines of racing for most of the 70s. Yeah, IndyCar, Formula One. Yep. The DFX, I think, is the turbo version of that, which is even oh, more badass. Jeez. Regardless of all the success, Randy wasn't truly a full-time racer. He was still living a double life. Randy couldn't just race. He simultaneously trafficked the entire time he was racing. Frankly, Randy was addicted to racing, and drugs were ironically how he earned his fix. Every step up the racing ladder required an equal increase in his slice of the black market. More cars, more drugs, and outside those... Randy was hardly a monk, spending lavishly on perks like private jets and penthouse suites. The high school dope dealer was now a kingpin. There's a funny story from the documentary where... What's this documentary called? Uh, it's called Bad Sport, and it's Ooh. one episode of a miniseries that outlines, oh. you know, like people cheating or whatever. Um, gotcha. His is really good. Uh, but one thing, they really, they don't try to make him out to be a saint, but 
they really like take the edge off of, you know, the massive amounts of drugs that he smuggled in and they downplay a lot of things. But yeah, I think one of the races in Miami, he was like, yeah, so I was racing in this one and I wanted my friends to see. So I rented out an entire high rise. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We had a party and there was lots of Coke. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Wow, Fun dude though. As mentioned before, Randy's smuggling empire started with a single boat. Early on, he worked as a middleman. Dealers would have him do pickups and drop-offs of products, and he'd make 20% of the load as payment. Breaking the law wasn't the only danger. One time Randy got caught in a tropical storm, his boat was getting pounded by 20-foot waves. He managed to anchor at a small island 100 miles from Miami. The bottom of the boat was full of precious cargo, also known as weed, so Randy was forced to weather the storm on deck. In Randy's words, you don't really let fear into your mind at moments like that. Again, Randy's ability to manage fear, or maybe more accurately, shove it aside, often served him well. This is a a skill that you can develop as a racer to kind of just turn off that like constant worry. <laughs> That's why I like driving at track instead of driving aggressively on the road. Because I yeah. feel like if, when you're at the track, you're not going to like smash into a, oncoming traffic. Absolutely. And you can just kind of like let go and just go as hard as you can. Yeah. Randy soon upgraded to a fleet of boats, but he was still only a mid-level player. But his racing habit demanded he grow bigger and faster. Soon, Randy was running operations with a 65-foot cigarette boat that could fit 18,000 pounds of pot. That's a lot. He moved up the food chain of distributors, getting closer to the source, allowing him to pocket more of the profits. His fleet grew to include Zodiac inflatable boats, tugboats, and even a Norwegian fishing vessel named Ursa Major. The Big Bear. The Big Bear. (laughs) So maybe this is the one I was was thinking about. Yeah. That was the boat you guys were on, the pontoon boat. Yeah. So there's a funny story from his his right-hand man, this gnarly dude who just swears the entire documentary (laughs) who is also the cook for his for the racing team oh sick but they had so much weed on this fishing vessel and they would transport it to the beach using these zodiac inflatable boats um he mentioned that like navy seal teams use these boats and they're yeah fast and rib boats basically or yeah but they were trying to like you know how when you take groceries in your apartment and you (laughs) try to load up as many bags like they're just trying to get it done as fast as possible because the sun was about to come up and they had this huge load and the this big dude just had to like put his body over the entire load as they're on the zodiac just like ripping like so (laughs) nothing falls off (laughs) before randy joined imsa he was doing fifteen thousand pound jobs with a 4.5 million dollar payout As he got going with Blue Thunder, Randy was approached by another drug smuggler named George Brock. Together, they devised a plan to buy a football field-sized shipping container vessel they dubbed the Barge. The Barge. Large Barge. The Barge was a game changer. A signature feature of the ship was its secret compartments. Usually, the bottom of a barge is filled with seawater to aid with buoyancy, but Randy's team realized that they could weld a steel false bottom and hide marijuana underneath the seawater, still safe and dry. If any FBI or Coast Guards took a peek, all they would see was the salt water on top. Smart. Yeah, this is a really ingenious, and they detail it in the documentary. So 
yeah, normally the bottom, full bottom is uh, used for to like suck in seawater if they need to go up or down mm-hmm. in level in the water. Gotcha. Uh, the bottom was welded, so there's a secret compartment. And when they would dock, all that seawater would, uh, they would jettison it. Mm-hmm. And then they would open these welded steel false bottoms, mm-hmm. fill a shipping container, and then that would be like one of the last shipping containers they took take off. Oh, I see. But since I it was see. shrouded in the cargo hold, you know, customs yeah. was none the wiser. Wow. Right under their nose. Yeah. But as you'll see, there's a drawback. On the barge's maiden voyage, it transported an, an incredible 100,000 pounds of marijuana. Oh, my The God. weed was stacked two stories tall. Very few people had the balls or the recklessness to bring that much weight in at a time. On top of requiring guts, it was a logistical Mount Everest. But Randy felt like he couldn't miss, comparing the experience to racing a track. You're hitting your lines, hitting your apexes, you're in the zone. Randy even bought his crew 100 club hats to celebrate <laughs> the milestone. A little too high key. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Trying to, you know, be a little bit more hush-hush about this. It's kind of like the 200-mile-an-hour club hats you get at Bonneville and such, or 300, Oh, I didn't know those were a thing. Yeah. After the first barge job, Randy began to rise in popularity on the racetrack. He was a busy, busy man. Oh, when yeah. he wasn't racing, he was smuggling. The barge continued to work, pulling multiple jobs of over 75,000 pounds. Randy was living lavishly, beyond the income of a man with a jet ski rental business. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot <laughs> I about that. That's, that's his legitimate his, uh, business. It's his only legitimate <laughs> business. Dang, they must be doing really well if you can uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> have an IMSA team and race at Indy 500. Randy started to get the attention of the FBI. Obviously, he started getting the sneaking feeling that he was being watched. In spite of the added pressure, Randy continued to set up smuggling deals. The next one, his biggest yet. Oh, no. I know, man. Just chill out for a little bit. If you think you're being watched, just uh, go to the jet ski kiosk for a while and just chill. <laughs> yeah, just chill out. Chill on the beach, man. In Randy's own mind, this was going to be his last haul, his crowning jewel. He was going to bring in about 83 tons of marijuana worth $55 million on the street. Insanely, this was happening right around the time Randy and his team were set to race the Indy 500. A week before Indy, Randy got some bad news. One of his co-conspirators had been arrested and flipped. Oh, no. Yeah, not good. He had tipped the feds off to Randy's barge. The barge had been headed for New Orleans, but thanks to the tip, Randy was able to reroute the ship and avert disaster. So yeah, this is the part of the documentary where it's coming from Colombia. It's filled with 83 tons of weed. And by the time it gets like halfway through the Caribbean, that's when this guy calls him up and says his, his cousin got popped. He flipped. He ratted out Randy and his crew. They got to do something. They got to act quick. So before it hits New Orleans, they decide they're going to reroute it through the Panama Canal and have it pop up in San Francisco, but that's going to take an extra six months. So this mm-hmm. is like a huge backslide for the team. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, the FBI had lost its scent. So they were scanning every single ship that entered New Orleans for three months because of this tip. 
The cost was more than just cash. In the prolonged journey, seawater had seeped under the secret steel panels. As a result, some of the weed had decomposed, creating an excess of methane gas. When welding tools were used to open the hidden compartment, the gas exploded and killed two people. Oof. Randy evaded responsibility. He wasn't on the ship, so it wasn't his problem. Oh, man. It started to rust through. Seawater got in. The marijuana decomposed and made methane gas. And these dudes exploded when they tried to cut it open. Yeah. And this is this is one of those times where they kind of soften it because he doesn't want to indict himself any further. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, do you know anything about this? And he just like smiles and he's like, I didn't see it. And that's like Shit. all he has to say. Wow. <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Randy's last haul made him incredibly wealthy, but even more paranoid. Randy started taking extreme precautions to protect himself. He and his wife got a sham divorce to protect assets. He started renting condos under fake names, using only payphones, and even had to sneak into the hospital in the dead of night to see his newborn son. Like the final hours of any drug field party, it all got pretty sad. With the FBI now openly investigating him, Randy wasn't even racing anymore. The risks he had taken had destroyed the very thing he was passionate about. One day, while munching on a bagel, Randy saw a television report. Indy race car driver Randy Lanier indicted on federal drug trafficking charges. Full stop. Randy finished his bagel, packed his bags, and got the hell out of there. This was in the middle of the war on drugs. And even if it wasn't, when you start talking about tons of drugs, life sentences start to enter the picture. Randy got out of the country with a fake passport and headed to jolly old London. (laughs) He laid down low for a while and then found himself in Monte Carlo, gambling at luxurious casinos. He He wasn't quite sure what to do. He thought about retiring in Spain or racing in New Zealand under a fake name. So yeah, this was uh, when Reagan first started his war on drugs. And there was, I can't remember what the phrase was, but if you got caught trafficking, you got a life sentence. And they were wow. actually handing out life sentences to people trafficking. So the stakes got raised. Randy eventually ended up making a trip to Antigua, where he owned some property. But that ended up being a little bit too predictable of a move. The authorities were waiting for him when he arrived. Randy was headed to trial. Most of his smuggling team had also been arrested and charged. One damning piece of evidence procured through an arrest was a ledger book that had every haul Randy had done with weight and the amount of money they made. Randy was going down. It was just a matter of how much time he would do. Because all these guys are like kind of scrappy and uh, they felt like they needed a front in the form of a person to do their business dealings. So this guy, Chuck... I don't know how they found him. Maybe he's just a friend, but he was like very upstanding looking, looked mm-hmm. like a businessman. They had this guy do a lot of the business dealings, like rent apartments that house the weed, mm-hmm. um, you know, buying ships, stuff like that. So this guy was like their business guy and he eventually got caught and in his car, he had a briefcase with this little ledger in it with just a bunch of random uh, numbers written on it, but yeah. that was all the hauls they did and wow. all the money they ma- made off. This is basically like the golden ticket for the FBI to get all these guys in. Jeez. Yeah. 
Randy and his cohorts managed to traffic more than 300 tons of that sticky icky icky into the U.S. <laughs> Prosecutors estimated Randy alone had earned almost $70 million. Randy had overseen an operation covering multiple countries and states and had hundreds of employees. Randy Lanier was convicted of drug trafficking, fraud, and running a continuing criminal enterprise. The sentence? Life in prison with no parole. Randy was eventually sent to solitary confinement in a maximum security prison after he attempted multiple escapes, ranging from a failed helicopter rescue attempt to sneaking out of a vending machine. Randy had become a failure. His racing career was over. His wife was also in jail. His father would die in jail for crimes related to Randy's dealings, and his friends were either snitches or also imprisoned. As the years went by, Randy accepted what he felt to be his fate to die in prison. So the reason that his dad got sucked into it was because right when all this was starting to go down, he took $3 million in cash and drove to Virginia and had his dad bury it on his property. Oh. So his dad, unfortunately, just got sucked into this whole thing. And because he wanted to protect his son, kind of took the fall and mm -hmm. went to jail, which is really sad. Yeah. Dang. Fast forward to October 15th, 2015. Randy, now 61 years old, had served a whopping 27 years of his life sentence. Against all odds, however, Randy was walking out of prison a free man under mysterious circumstances. The decision to free him is sealed in federal documents, and Randy himself won't comment. One theory is that Randy had some sort of dirt against the federal government, knowledge that they had acted corruptly in their seizure of his assets, but... It's impossible to know for sure what happened. Well, okay. So they touch on this in the documentary and they make it seem like Obama pardoned him, but... I think a life sentence for drug trafficking is like insane. But so Obama definitely softened the laws for nonviolent drug traffickers. Mm -hmm. And I think because it was only marijuana, because he had never done cocaine mm -hmm. uh, trafficking... That was one of the reasons that he was able to be sprung. That makes sense. Since his release, Randy is back in Florida and back racing cars. He's racing for Rally Baby Racing. <laughs> I think I think I read a Rally uh, Baby. I think I read a news article about this a couple of years ago in like Road and Track. And is Vince I, Vaughn the title sponsor? <laughs> yeah, Rally Baby. Um, <laughs> But I think you like the team has like an E30 that they race or something. It's oh, definitely fun. it's a far cry from from IMSA. But hey, he's out of prison. He's racing, so that's good for him. Aside from being at the track, Randy is back with his first wife and the mother of his two children. They aren't married again yet, but he's hoping she will say yes in the future. Randy appears to be on the straight and narrow, and is dabbling in activism as well, raising awareness for people who are wrongfully incarcerated for nonviolent drug charges. He campaigns for drug-related criminals to be released, especially those with life sentences. Randy says, quote, I don't have regrets, but I do have remorse. I just want to do good for people now. Perhaps the lesson here is that if you're an adrenaline junkie, pick a habit that won't land you in federal prison. But it's easy to see how Randy got swept up in the crazy momentum of his twin careers and how inseparable his drug smuggling must have felt from paying for his racing. It's a sad fact that his career ended just as he was getting started, with a Rookie of the Year title at the Indy 500. Still, most people never reach the top of the mountain to begin with, and even fewer get a whole second chance 
at life. Well said. There's a funny moment in the end of the documentary where, so the guy Chuck, who is like the front man, the fake businessman, he flipped on Randy, even though they were like really good pals. And there's like a reuniting moment in the end where Randy had gotten out of jail. Chuck served seven years, but had been out of jail for 20 years at this point. And they have Randy go over to Chuck's house. And there's this like, you know, when you like did your best friend wrong and you're just like, yeah, there's this feeling of like, ah, like, ah, yeah. you know, you're being really nice to me right now, but I was a shithead. There's this moment where Chuck sees Randy for the first time in 20 years or 30 years or something. And he does this like overly <laughs> welcoming thing, but you can tell that like, you know, I fucked up. Like, yeah, yeah. but he's like, he just like, swears too much. <laughs> and he's like, ah, it's so fucking good to see you, Randy. Like, I fucking love you. And it's, <laughs> it's like kind of <laughs> awkward, but very funny. Um, he brings up a good point. Randy brings up a good point. And he's like, it's a plant, man. It's a plant that grows. Mm -hmm. We're not refining anything like cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Like to put people in prison for life for a plant is insane. It is ridiculous, and not to be a, and not to be at risk of sounding like your typical freaking SoCal stoner, dude. It's you're <laughs> right. It's just a plant. Like it, it that was ridiculous. The war on drugs was a sham. The more that you make it illegal, the more you're empowering this black market. Yeah, you know, it's compl it's like a weird thing. Like if the plant, if the plant, the freak, if the plant, dude, the flower, dude, the flower, <laughs> the bud, dude, <laughs> if that bud, if that bud wasn't illegal then Randy wouldn't have made as nearly as much money as he did. He probably wouldn't have had the opportunity or at least the the, the funds to fund his racing program. It's just like they, they, they are linked. Like Randy's story is like a perfect circle in that way, which is just crazy. I'm, I'm glad that he's out of prison. I'm very glad that he's back in the car. Yeah, more power to him that he was yeah. able to fund his hobby that he was <laughs> very good at through this illegal vein. But yeah. Yeah, sucks he got caught up in it. So that's our story this week. We have a letter from David. Hey, guys, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times by now, but in the Yugo episode, you guys mentioned that Renault had a trademark on the three-digit car name with a zero in the middle. You got every detail about that story right, except that it wasn't Renault. It was, it was Peugeot. Peugeot. That's I'm, right. That's right. The Thank you, David. I'm pretty sure you actually told that story correctly in the past, though. <laughs> especially, the part, especially the part about the Porsche 901. I was a factory-trained Porsche tech back in the day, so Whoa. I've heard the story quite a few times. It was a great episode, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Made me think that maybe Malcolm Bricklin needs his own episode. Ooh. Mm. Thank you for the entertainment. I've listened to every episode. I've been watching Donut on Facebook since at least uh, 1917. Since at least 2017. <laughs> Carners are the best nerds. And that's from David in Finley, Ohio. Thank you very much for the correction and kind words, David. If you'd like to hit us up for your own correction and or kind words, email us at passgas at donutmedia.com. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. This was a fun one. Absolutely. Joe, great job co-hosting with me. Thanks for all your insight. You can follow at, Joe at Joe G. Weber. I just want to say, if you have a correction for us, don't feel weird about sending it in. We feel weird about saying stuff that's wrong, especially if it's something that we're just spitting out of our mouth holes. 
yeah. unadulterated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so please correct us. We love it. We don't like being wrong. So oh, we love it. Give me uh, those corrections, baby. <laughs> also, Malcolm Bricklin is a really good recommendation. If you guys have any other recommendations for episodes, maybe a story or, you know, some weird car that turned around the fortunes of a car company. We love that kind of stuff. So please Absolutely. send us your recs, passgas at donutmedia.com. We will respond. Yeah, so go ahead, hit up, uh, follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Donut at Donut Media. Big thank you to our producer, as always, Gavin Kinsel. And our writer, uh, Jacob Wysocki. Jacob Wysocki, keep, stay on that pontoon boat, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, see you next week. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.